Um, if you have a Bible, please turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Let me, uh, let me read this, and then we'll pray. Isaiah 6, uh, I'm going to read to verse, uh, read to verse 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and a voice of him who called, at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me. For I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So our text this evening, let's, let's pray. Lord, all week and even all day as preaching on this text, I've just felt like words are so inadequate to talk about the holiness of God. And I ask, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would, that you would go beyond words, that you would reveal yourself to us as Isaiah saw you, and that we would see you, God. I mean, we, this place might not fill with smoke and the the, the hem of your garment not, might not fill this room. Maybe, but may, maybe not, Lord. I just pray that in any case, God, we would see you. We would see your beauty and your holiness and your majesty and your perfection and your size. And we would see how we are needy and just low. And like Isaiah, woe is me, God. If there's any sort of religious pride in us, take it away. If there's any sort of just personal pride in us, take it away. May we see you and be changed. I don't think we can be changed until we really get a, a true glimpse of who you are. So, God, I pray that you would lead us. I need your anointing tonight to communicate the beauty of who you are with, with just words, God. It seems like a silly task, but, God, you've given it to us to do. So, tonight, would you bless us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we've been um, in a series for the last several weeks called Discovering God. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at some of the many attributes. God has many attributes. We've been just looking at a few attributes of God. And what we've said when we first started this series is we said that an attribute of God is any term that adequately completes the sentence, God is. Any term that we can, we can put at the end of that sentence that adequately completes that sentence is an attribute of God. Like God is love. We talked about that. God is jealous. God is just. And God is mercy. God is grace. God is powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all these things God is. It's just, a, it's just an attribute of God. And what we added to that was this one caveat that I think is very important, something A.W. Tozer said. We added to that an attribute is something which God has declared to be true of himself. And why that's a very important distinction is there's some things about God that unless God had revealed it to us, we wouldn't know that God is that, like jealous. Like nobody makes up a jealous God. 
But God had revealed to us in the Ten Commandments, written in stone, like you know, those, those stone tablets that we all hang on our walls. We all have them at home, you know? Like, in there is, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In there, in the Ten Commandments. I mean, we, no one would guess up or think of a jealous God. we like, that's not a really good attribute to have. Jealousy is not a good thing. Why would God be jealous? But we talked about that at length about four weeks ago. Now, the attribute that we're looking at today, tonight, is quite unique. Not only because it actually sums up all the attributes of God, and it does. Like, the, the holiness of God actually sums up all the attributes. I mean, how do you talk about God as being love, and God as being just, and God as being, being wrath, and God as being grace, and God as being truth, and God as being light? How do you sum all that God is up in one word? That word would be Holy. But the reason why this attribute is so, so unique, not just because it, it sums up all that God is, this attribute actually carries us to the brink of language. This, this word, holy, this description of God, is, is a word that goes beyond the experience of God, in, and it goes to the end of words. Like, you can have no other words. If we were all on, like, a river of attributes of God, we get really super sci-fi weird. If we're, like, on a river of the attributes of God, it would end with holy. Then it would fall off into this waterfall of abyssness. I don't know. Like, it, it would just, that's what would happen. Like, you have no other word beyond holy. Think of another word beyond holy. God is holy. That's the end of the sentence. The only thing that you can add to holy is holy, holy. That's it. God is holy. 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 That's it. There's no other word you can add to that. This like takes us to the brink of our own language of describing who God is. This is what makes this attribute so unique, but it also is what makes this attribute so difficult to teach on as a pastor, to teach on as a teacher and preacher, because I, I felt all day like a complete imbecile trying to talk about the, the, this attribute of God. And the reason why is something that Abraham Heschel said in his book, God in Search of Man, he called this attribute of God, the holiness of God, the, the dimension of the ineffable. It's like you can't even describe it. Words don't describe it. By definition, it's undescribable. He says this in his book. By the ineffable, we do not mean the unknown as such. Things unknown today may be known a thousand years from now. By the, by the ineffable, we mean that aspect of reality which by its very nature lies beyond our comprehension. And is acknowledged by the mind to, beyond, to be beyond the scope of the mind. That's the holiness of God. It lies beyond your mind, and by definition, you can't define it. So what I'm trying to do tonight is to describe the undescribable. The indescribable. We cannot describe this, and I, like an idiot, am trying to do it. I don't know why I chose this attribute. Who knows? But what I want to do... And this one, what I want to do is I want to show us what Isaiah saw and then hopefully just step off the stage and let us worship God. I, I actually just wanted to read the text and just go, end of sermon, close my Bible and walk off. That would have been a really good sermon. Um, but I feel I'm compelled to at least just show us a couple of things that Isaiah saw. The ineffable is the holiness of God. It's by its very nature. It lies beyond our comprehension and what we can grasp of the holiness of God fills us with awe rather than curiosity. I mean, Isaiah, when he was here before the, the presence of God, he wasn't like, God, so why are the angels with the wings? Like, why are there so many wings? God, what's the thunder about? I mean, John, at the end of the Bible, he, he wrote this book called Revelation, and his name is John the Revelator, which is like a really cool name. 
And so he, he has this revelation, and, and when he sees the Lord, he has almost um, a similar vision. He can't describe God. He can't describe God in any other language than pure light shining through pure, precious stones. That's the only way he could describe God. It's like the way that light shines through carnelian and jasper and the way that light shines through water to make a rainbow. It's like that. Like, he has no words to describe God. But what Isaiah, I mean, what Isaiah and John do, they don't like, they don't see God and go, God, what's going on? Why the angels? Why the angels with the eyeballs and like screaming holy, holy, holy and flying everywhere and on fire and no one is filled with curiosity before the living God. They're filled with awe. They're like, and they fall on their face as dead, and they worship God. This is the holiness of God. And I think what this attribute has to do, we have to listen to all the other ones to, in order to really grasp this one. And so what I want to do tonight is I want us to look at what Isaiah saw. I'm going to look at it in three ways. The weight of God, this is what Isaiah saw, the weight of God the ways of God, and lastly, the washing of God. The weight of God, the ways of God, and the washing of God. First, the weight of God. Isaiah saw that God was holy. Not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. See, in Hebraic language, repetition conveyed magnitude. You and I would say super crazy holy or something like that. He was so super holy, really holy. That's not how you convey it in Hebraic language. The way you convey it in Hebraic language is by repetition. God is holy, holy. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot of holy. But he's holy, 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 completely holy. And that's what this conveys. The whole earth, this is what the, the, the seraphim say, the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. And that word glory in Hebrew conveys this idea of weight, the whole earth is like weighed down with the glory of God. You can't get away from it. it it's this, this idea of the real. God is real. The reality of God is in and fills the whole earth. The whole earth is full with the reality of God. What happens to Isaiah is God moves beyond just being this abstract concept. This like, well, God is out there. He's somewhere. And I sing some songs to him once a week. And I try to follow him. And I read this, his book. It goes from that to being real. Heavy, real, in front of you. And this is what happens when Isaiah sees the Lord. Here in chapter 6, Isaiah has a, I, I think Isaiah has almost a conversion experience. Isaiah believed in God. Isaiah followed God up to this point. He grew up in a believing home. He was even in ministry for God and with God. But here Isaiah was converted from living for himself and his own success, even his ministerial success, his ministry success, to now converted to living for God and God's glory alone. This is what happens to Isaiah. From chapter 6 on, his whole posture changes, Isaiah's life changes, his message changes, everything changes after Isaiah chapter 6. What changed him? What changed Isaiah? I think it was having this encounter with God. He came to a real knowledge of God. Now, we might be able to assume the way this vision started. He walked into the temple. It doesn't say that Isaiah walked into the temple. But we can assume this took place in the temple. So possibly Isaiah one day walks into the temple and he, he, he takes in the sights and the sounds of the temple, of, of temple worship, of priests offering incense before God, priests praying and sacrificing. And he takes all this in and then suddenly it goes dim and Isaiah has this, is struck with this vision. And the vision looks like this. It says that in the year... 
that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was sitting upon a throne. And he was high, and he was lifted up. And the train, the hem of his robe, the hem of it, couldn't even fit the whole robe into the building. Just the hem of it filled the temple. Now, the first thing that Isaiah sees is that the throne was occupied by God. It is no coincidence that this happened when it was, when it was the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had just died, he was, and King Uzziah was actually a really good king. He was a good king in a long line of bad kings in Judah. After King Solomon came a, a line of bad king after bad king, and then Uzziah came, and under Uzziah's leadership, Judah grow, grew in every way. Judah grew spiritually and financially and militarily. There was peace in, in Judah because of King Uzziah's rule. He had actually been a, a, a true king until, of course, at the end of his life when he got proud. But Judah flourished under Uzziah's leadership. And it's really easy to put our hopes in a leader like that. It's easy when a leader is leading in all of his gifting and all her gifting and, and you see this person and someone with charisma who knows what they're doing and where they're going and how to rally a group, a nation behind them. It's really easy to get behind a leader like this. And the death of Uzziah meant the possibility of a bad ruler coming in. Who's going to take the throne now that Uzziah is dead? The nation was in unrest. It was crying out for leadership. And, the, and there was this possibility of this neighboring army, Assyria, coming in and taking advantage of the situation and ransacking Judah. Judah as a nation and its people felt vulnerable. They felt exposed. And it's no coincidence that at a time of vulnerability, at a time of them being exposed like, a, like an open nerve and, and them at unrest, them worrying like, oh my gosh, who's going to take the throne? What's happening It's no coincidence that in the year of vulnerability, in the year that no king sat on the throne and and they were exposed, it was that year that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, on the throne. Who's going to rule? Who's going to reign? Who's going to take leadership? Who's going to take charge? What's going to happen to my life? What's going to happen to to my career? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my nation? It was that year that I saw the Lord seated on a throne. There might have been a crisis on earth, but none in the presence of God. And God continued to rule and to be sovereign. See, what Isaiah really saw was the true reality of God. You and I, we have times when our, our job just knocks us off balance. We're like, my job's up in the air. I don't know like, what's going to happen in the future. Or relationships or someone that you love is lost. And you feel vulnerable and you feel exposed. You feel like at any moment, just one more thing could ruin everything. What if you got this perspective in the middle of that moment, and I know we've all been there, in the middle of that moment of being exposed and being vulnerable, in that moment you came into church, and you walked into church and you're expecting, okay, worship's going to happen, it's going to be a great Sunday, I hope to learn something about God because I really need it right now, and you walk into church and you get raptured up into a vision, and everything goes dim in here, and then God's, the hem of his garment kind of filled this room. And you see these four gnarly angel seraphim things with six wings, and they're all yelling at each other, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, and right in the middle is God's throne, and there's an earthquake. What would that do to you? You would see that and go, problem over. And my life is in control. God's on the throne. 
He's on the throne and he's ruling and he's sovereign and he, he knows what he's doing. And I'm just like, what am I doing to be worried? What do I have to be worried about? That's what would happen. It would, it would just rock you to your soul. This is what's happening in Isaiah 6. And what's really going on in a scene like this is Isaiah recognizes the real hopelessness of his situation. He realizes, you know, I, I, can't, I can't really do anything about my problems. I mean, what can I do about them? He realizes that it's God alone. And from this point on, actually, from this point on, Isaiah steps off of the center stage of his life. And for the rest of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't even mention himself anymore. See, in Isaiah chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, Isaiah is all about woe are you and woe are you. And he's looking at the nation and he's just talking about all this stuff. But in Isaiah 6, he's changed. And from there on out, he doesn't talk about himself at all. His life is off the center stage. Actually, there's no, there's no room for Isaiah on the center stage. The whole earth is filled with God's glory. The hem of his garment filled the temple. There's no room for Isaiah and his glory. There's no room for you and your glory. There's no room for you and your thing. God fills everything. What does that look like to remove ourselves off the, the throne of our lives, remove ourselves off the center stage of our lives? Well, first, I think we have to realize something. I think we have to realize that we can look at some of the attributes of God pretty selfishly. We can look at the love of God and go, oh, I like the love of God. Why do you like the love of God? Because he loves me. Okay, cool. I like the grace of God. That's a good attribute to you. Why? Because I need grace. I like the mercy of God. Why? Because I need mercy. I like the power of God because I could really use the power. I need God to be, I like the justice of God because God, there's so much injustice in the world. There needs to be someone who's going to enact punishment. The reality is for many, the starting point of religion or, or spirituality is that we get what we get out of it. We go to God because what we get, what we get from the deal. But the holiness of God is something completely different. The holiness of God, when we really see it, we might see it tonight. I pray that we all do. The holiness of God, and what this has done for me over just over the last days and weeks studying this, the holiness of God makes us feel like a worm. The holiness of God makes us feel filthy, stupid selfish. That's what it does when we really get it. None of us boast in front of the holiness of God. No one goes, but I have my thing, God. But God, I'm awesome too, right? Like no one does that before the holiness of God. I mean, have you ever been in the presence of someone in your discipline or in your line of work that's a genius? Like I, I throw the word genius around a lot. Everybody makes fun of me about it. Like you say everything's genius. I'm like, it is. That sandwich is genius. You're like, no, you can't say sandwich is genius. I'm like, it is. I throw around that word a lot, but have you ever really been in front of true genius? Like, I don't know if you're like a coder and you code and you're in front of a genius coder. I don't even know what I'm talking about right now, but like, you know, like I've ever been to someone who's so much better at what, what you do than you are. And you just don't, not only do you feel like, oh, they're better, but you feel completely dumb. Like you feel unworthy. You feel unholy. You ever thought that you're super attractive and you've been in someone who's really attractive? You're like... I feel so ugly right now. <laughs> have, you been, have you ever been in front of like true beauty? And you're going, how does anyone else live around you? 
maybe it's in music, or we can play this out in any sort of realm. I, for myself, being a, a pastor, I, I know that really smart people, or smart, smart, smart people, um, that I'm around that are, that are like pastors, and they're brilliant, they have PhDs and all this stuff, I get really intimidated around. And I just stand there going, I'm so dumb. Recently, my friend uh, Britt, Merrick, and I were at, at this conference. We don't even know how we got into this conference. We were at this conference in New York. It was at the Harvard Club. You had to wear a suit for it. I don't even own a suit. I showed up like, you had to wear a suit. I had to go buy a suit. It was like too big for me. And I walked in, hi, everyone. I'm from California. My suit's too big. Like, and I felt so <laughs> dumb. And all these smart, I mean, it was a very small conference. All these smart people, I'm not going to name them all, but they're brilliant people that I read and that we quote and stuff like that are there. One of them, you might have read his stuff. I mean, you, I, I don't know what you feel about his doctrine, but you can't argue the fact that he is absolutely just brilliant and smart is N.T. Wright. And he was there. And every time we're by N.T. Wright, he's very smart, smart, smart scholar. Every time we're by N.T. Wright, we just like feel dumb. We have nothing to say. <laughs> the end of the conference, I'm in the elevator going down to our hotel, and Britt like shoots in the elevator. Like walks in, he's just smirking like a little junior hire. I'm like, What's, what, what happened? He's like, N.T. Wright? just called me smart. I'm like, what? How? Why? Like, what? What happened? And Brit's smart. I don't know. I, I was thinking, Brit's going to go, well, I had to correct him on this Greek word, and he said this, and I said, it's actually dunamas, or whatever, and he's like, oh, thank you. I, I thought it was like something like that, and he goes, well, listen, I'm by the fruit table. I'm like, all right. He's like, and N.T. Wright is like trying to get grapes onto his plate, and he's stabbing these circle cylinder grapes and he's like can't get them on his plate so I walk up and I'm like NT grab the cantaloupe and scoop the grapes on the plate and he said you're so smart and I went and I just walked away I swear and he just walked right in the elevator and he goes he goes I'm gonna tweet it I'm like that's not like I don't think the context was what people think I mean it's like, like that kind of stuff in, in front of like, people that are smart and way better at what they do than you are. You feel dumb. You feel unholy, unworthy. Imagine. Imagine being in front of God. Imagine God, just his glory and his holiness, his beauty, his light, his perfection filling this building. And you're standing with your thing. You're even standing with your problem. With your, I can give you this, God, but I have a lot of money, but I'm really smart, and I went to this school. No one does that. Jewish tradition says that Isaiah's father was brother to the king. Isaiah grew up in a royal family. He was royally trained in the best schools. He was the most brilliant, probably one of the most brilliant prophets of his generation. He was young. He was this rising star uh, on the scene in Jerusalem and Israel, um, in Judah. He had a silver tongue, powerful in communication, and he gets in the presence of God. Here's a guy who has it all together, who's this rising star, who's a prophet, great order, all these things. He gets in the presence of God and all but dies. It almost kills him. And he falls on his face. And he goes, whatever I have to offer is unclean. He didn't stand before God and go, God, I've studied the Bible my whole life, and I am a great orator, and I can be used by you greatly. He goes, I am not worthy. I am unclean. I can give you nothing. You are God. You are sufficient. You have it all. I can bring you nothing. And he falls on his face. See, stepping off center stage means you realize that God is enough 
He's more than enough. He's self-sufficient, all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing. He's everything. And there's nothing you can add. There's nothing you can bring. It's like that old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, flee to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. It's like that. Like, I, I got nothing, God. And what Isaiah sees are these seraphim who, who interestingly enough, don't praise God because God redeemed them. They don't praise God because he loved them. He do, they don't praise God because they, God has shown them mercy or grace. At least that's not what they say. They are not around the throne of God saying, God, you are love, love, love. They're not around the throne of God going, God, you are grace, grace, grace. God, you are powerful, powerful, powerful. They are not worshiping God because of something God did. They are worshiping God because of something God is, and that's it. And we have a problem with that. If I told you tonight, and this might be unpopular, this might rub you the wrong way, if I told you tonight, God is worthy of our worship if he's done nothing for you. He's still worthy. You're like, what? No. He better do something. If I'm going to worship him, he better do something. The angels are not worshiping God because God's doing something. They're worshiping God because God is. He's holy. That's it. Just like he is. They're not going, God, you're so strong, strong, strong. God, you're holy. You are, and we're worshiping you. End of story. End of, end of discussion. You are worthy. If God has done nothing, if he didn't do anything to redeem us, anything to save us, to show his power, to show his beauty, he's still worthy of worship because he is. There was a song that we sang when I was growing up in this church, and it was an 80s song, and 80s was a really bad era for Christian music. And so it's really bad, and so I won't sing it to you, but the lyrics were great. They're genius. And they were this, just because you are. That was, that was the, the, the line of the song. I mean, we sing songs like, God, you're this, and you're strong, and thunder, and ah, la, 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 and God, you're like gracious and merciful and powerful. And it was like, just because you are. Because you're God. You're worthy of all of our worship. This is what the holiness of God means. And, and these seraphim, this is what the seraphim are saying. They're around the throne room of God, and they're just saying to one another, Isaiah uh, 6, 2 says, above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, and with these wings they covered his face, and with two covered feet, and two he flew, and one called to the other. They're saying this to each other. They're saying this to the other seraphim, they're like, God is holy, holy, holy. The other one turns like, holy, 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 holy. And they're going around saying this to each other, and God's in the middle of this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These seraphim, Literally called the burning ones. This is what the word seraphim means. It means living flames. Don't, don't picture like baby, chubby baby angels with diapers. Don't picture Thomas Kincaid angels. These are gnarly, flaming, burning, living angels with these gnarly wings. And they're screaming, yelling, singing to one another. It says with two wings they flew. This means that they were an active, prompt, obedient service to God. Anything God wanted, anytime God wanted it, they were ready to do it. God, as they flew above next to the Lord, they stood flying. God, what do you want us to do? With two wings, they covered their face. Why did they cover their face? These flaming ones, these living, burning ones, they, they were holy. But God was 
holy, 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 and they couldn't look straight on God. He was too holy, even for them. And so they covered their face. For God, we can't even look upon you. You're so holy. And then it says, with two, they covered their feet. They, they basically covered themselves. And these, these were pure, angelic beings. And the presence of God, they thought themselves unworthy. Angels, seraphim. God, you're so holy, I'm unworthy. God, we can't look on you, don't look on us, but we're here ready to serve you with whatever you want us to do. What we have to understand is that you and I don't make God anything. I mean, you you see this scene in heaven. You don't make God anything. We have this vernacular, this language in, in the church that will make God your Savior, your personal Lord and Savior. Make God your authority. You don't make God your personal Savior. You don't make God your authority. Can you imagine standing in front of this God, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple, and angels around him singing, holy, holy. Do you imagine going up and going, God, I think I'm going to make you my personal Savior now. No way. You're on your face. You're going, you are. You are holy. You are God. And I'm just going to repent and get underneath that. I'm going to repent and you are the Lord and Savior. I'm just going to align myself with this reality. This is true reality. I think sometimes we think, okay, God, I've tried you out. I, th- I think I'll let you be my Savior now. Look at, look, at, look at this scene. This scene is God exalted. This is true reality. This is what Isaiah saw. Second thing Isaiah sees is the ways of God. He sees that God's ways are not his ways. See, we have this horrible proclivity to reduce God's ways to our ways and God's thoughts to our thoughts. And we're all notorious at doing this. We make God out to love like we love or God is merciful like we're merciful. Miroslav Volf, professor of theology at Yale, said that the most powerful and seductive images of God are not the ones we craft in the privacy of our hearts through reflection on God's word and prayer. He says, rather, the images that we have of God in our own minds and what we think are true of God are the images that seep into our minds as we watch TV, as we read books, as we go shopping or socialize with our community. He writes in his book, Free of Charge, he says, slowly and imperceptibly, the one true God begins acquiring the features of the gods of this world. He, he, he writes, for instance, our God simply gratifies our desires rather than reshaping them in accordance with the beauty of God's own character. Our God then kills enemies rather than dying on their behalf as God did in Jesus Christ. What Wolf writes and what he says is, how does our version of God confront our desires? How does that happen? And a lot of us would say, if we were completely honest, we're like, well, how does God confront my desires. Well, God satisfies my desires. God wants what I want, right? He wants me to be happy and successful and influential. He wants me to be, like, comfortable. That's what we think God wants for us. Are you kidding me? You think that's what God wants for you? But we, we kind of, we, we, we project the things that we think our God wants on God. Well, yeah, of course God wants that. And then what happens is then our version of God ironically hates everyone we hate and loves everyone we love. And Lamont said, you can safely assume that you've created a God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. That's what we do, though. 
Like, oh yeah, that political party, God hates them. And that view on the church, God hates them. And that view on sexuality, God hates them. Why? Because I hate them. You've made, congratulations, you've made a God in your own image. God loves everything I love and God hates everything I hate. What Wolf is saying is that we project all these modern acceptable attributes that we want our God to have onto the true God. And you can tell from that quote that this can have devastating consequences on our lives personally and the society we live in. What Isaiah saw was that God was not just a better version of himself. What Isaiah saw was that God wasn't, he wasn't just trying to project who Isaiah wanted God to be onto God. God was other. That's what holy means. God is other. You should maybe write that down or lock that in your head. What does it mean that God is holy? He's other. He's not a better version of you. He's not you 2.0 or 3.0 or the 5 version of you. He's not just a better version of you. God is other. His ways are not a better version of our ways. The way God saves is not just a better version of the way you would save. He saves other. It's completely different. This is why A.W. Tozer writes in The Knowledge of the Holy, God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. We want God and we think that God embraces our version of justice, our version of love, our version of sexuality, our version of hate, our version of politics, our version of spirituality. God doesn't embrace your version of those things. He's other. We embrace his version of those things. Let me say that again, just in case you missed it. God doesn't embrace your version of things. We embrace his version of things. At the end of his prophecy, towards the end of Isaiah's prophecy, this is what Isaiah said. Isaiah 55. This is what the Lord told Isaiah. My, my thoughts are not your thoughts. We think, well, God, why would you do that? God was like, because I don't think like you. Well, God, if I was to save the world, I would save it like this. If I was to do like a, 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 like a faith, I would build, if I was to write a Bible, I would write it. God's like, well, guess what? My thoughts are different. They're other. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. How do we know that Isaiah realized the otherness of God? This is how, in verse 5, Isaiah becomes aware of himself. See, he, 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 he was aware of the desperate political situation that the nation was in, he was made aware of the awesome holiness of God and all that that entails and all that means. But in verse 5, Isaiah finally became brutally aware of himself. In chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah, in a very eloquent way, was speaking woes, pronouncing woes on everyone else. Woes, it was just a way of cursing. He was like, curse you, curse you, woe to you, woe to you. And he was looking at all the sins of all the people. But he stands in the presence of God, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, because I've seen the king, I've seen him, the Lord of hosts. I am undone. He realizes who he is in the presence of God, and it's not the realization of his finitude that crushes him. It's not that he realizes, oh my gosh. He doesn't say, oh, woe is me, I'm so small. You're so big, God. Like, 
your, your hem fills the temple. And I'm like, it's tiny and you're giant. It wasn't his size. It's his uncleanness before God. He realizes God is so perfect. Guys, I can tell you from, from just experiencing this text over the last several days that this is true. The first part of my week was spent going, why would I ever open the Bible in front of people ever again? I am so unholy. I mean, it spun me almost in a depression going, God, I'm just not. I'm not. And you are. Like, I think that's where it has to start. Like, you think that you're just an ounce holy. You're not. Like, even your good thing. What? Imagine the best thing that Isaiah could offer to God. Well, what could have been? As a prophet? As an orator? As a prophet of God speaking forth the words of God? What would be the best thing Isaiah can give to God? His mouth, right? Got to give you my mouth. I'm your mouthpiece. What does Isaiah say before God that is unclean? My lips are unclean. The best thing that I have to give you, God, are, it's filthy. A lot of us think that, well, it's my purity before God. It's my chastity before God. It's my, my money, my, my time, my education. I can give that to God and, God. and you stand before God and you're like, it's filthy. It's nothing. He realizes, Isaiah realizes he doesn't measure up morally. He realizes that God has, that he has nothing to offer God. He realizes that God doesn't even need him. God's not dependent on us. God is seated on the throne and everything's fine. And not only was it unnecessary that Isaiah would be a servant of God, he wasn't even worthy to be a servant of God. I'm not even worthy, God. I I thought I was worthy in like chapters one through five, but now I'm not. That's what was going on. I thought I was worthy. I thought I was like giving my life to you. I was, I was worthy to serve you. And he gets in front of God. He's like, I am unworthy. I think this is the beginning of a servant of God right here. Because after that, what happens is God takes, has an angel. Verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, if you're reading this, you're going, wait, didn't you just say that the angel was like a living flame, like a fireball of wings and awesomeness? Why would a flaming angel, a fireball, you have to use tongs to touch fire? Like, couldn't he be fire and go, fire, 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 there you go. Like, here, I have actually hand of fire. Like, I have a wing of fire. Here, boom. Why, why do you have to grab tongs? Grab a, get, grab, because this is a different fire. Like, these angels were holy, but this fire was different. This fire was from the altar. This fire was godly fire. And he grabs tongs, and he takes this fire, and it says, Isaiah said, he touched my mouth and said, behold. This says, touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What Isaiah realized is what we realize in baptism, that you can't cleanse yourself. If you, if you baptized yourself, can I just tell you it didn't work? Like if you went down the river one day and go, I baptized me in the name of, and if you just like did that thing, or like you, were, you played Baptist growing up, you're like, I'm going to baptize, like baptize me and like my dolls and stuff. It just didn't work. You can't baptize yourself. You can't clean yourself. Isaiah realized that. He wasn't like, God, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. Okay, I'm better now. He could do nothing. He just laid there. I'm a man of, un- woe is me. Until, until this angel took fire from the altar and, and made atonement for his sin. He could do nothing. 
So if you, if you thought you came into church tonight and you're like, oh, I came into church Sunday night, like, that's got to be points, right? I came here to clean myself. You can't clean yourself. If you said, I'm going to make better decisions, I'm going to make better choices, I'm going to get rid of old habits and make good new habits, I'm going to clean myself, you can't clean yourself. Someone, something has to cleanse you. How do we get cleansed? Isaiah was cleansed with fire from the altar. How do you and I get cleansed? Well, interestingly enough, Isaiah gets a peek into heaven. And then hundreds of years pass, five, six, 650 years pass, and John, the revelator, gets another glimpse into heaven. And you know what's going on? The same song. The same song is being sung. The song that's been going on forever and ever and ever, John gets a glimpse and he's like, oh my gosh, same song. Same song in heaven. If you have a Bible, turn or scroll or whatever you do to Revelation chapter Four. We don't read from Revelation a lot, and it's a really fun book. I've been tempted to teach on it, but, um, but I just want to read chapter 4 to you. I want you to see, like, what John sees. There's actually a lot of parallel between this and Isaiah 6. He says, after this, I looked, John, saying, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and, uh, and the first voice, which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne, a throne stood in heaven, and one was seated on the throne. And he who was sat on there, remember I was talking about he just can't describe who God is. Just look at how he describes it. And there's one who sat on the throne. He had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had all the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pills of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, there are four living creatures full of eyes, front and back. And the first living creature looked like a lion, the second like, a, like an ox, the third like a, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like, a, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures... Each of them, these gnarly creatures with six wings, there's those wings again, full of eyes all around and within, night and day, day and night, they never cease to say the same song from all eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him, over and over again, the, 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 the 24 elders with these crowns on their head, They stood up to worship who lives forever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things and by your will they exist and they were created. The same song goes on over and over and over again in heaven until, guys, if there's a song that's on repeat for eternity and there's a new song, that's a big deal. Chapter 5 of Revelation, there's a new song in heaven. A new one. And this one's been on repeat for eternity. And then a new song is introduced into heaven. Like the worship leader's like, hey guys, I wrote a song. 
New one, everybody's like, yeah, new song. Okay, what ushers in this new song? What brings about this new song? The introduction of this lamb that was slain that looks like the lion of the tribe of Judah, this conquering lion, but the sacrificial lamb walks on the scene. This lamb, this lion is Jesus. With the scars, the only thing man made in heaven are the scars of Christ. With the scars of our redemption, our atonement, the thing that cleanses us, Isaiah would point forward to it. Later on, he would talk about the suffering servant, the one who would give his life as a ransom for many. That was him, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ is brought into this scene that John sees, there's now a new song. And the new song sounds like this, verse 9 in chapter 5. And they sang a new song. That's a huge deal. And this is, the new, this is how the song went. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." The first time, what happens now, before it's like, God, we're worshiping you because you are, you're holy, end of story. But now they're worshiping God because of something he did. What did he do? This is the thing that spins, that trips the angels out, the book of Ephesians uh, says, for all eternity. He, Christ himself, gave his life as a ransom to, to bring us in to the presence of God, no matter if you're Jewish no matter if you're Asian, African-American, Brazilian, it doesn't matter. God has redeemed us from every tongue, tribe, nation, language. And redeemed us. This ushers in a new song. Christ has made atonement for us. And because of that, holy God, who we're not worthy to be in the presence of, touches our lips touches our lives and purifies us and makes us whole. Now, guys, at the end of a, a love sermon, I go, God is love. He loves you. Then of a grace sermon, I go, God is grace. He's gracious toward you. He is merciful. He's merciful towards you. But the end of holy, it's like this. God is holy. End of sermon. He is. And because he is, let's worship him. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are, that you just are holy. And I pray that we get that. Just somehow, Lord, that you would show that, you would reveal that to us, and we'd worship you because you are. And we would fill this room tonight with praise. I thank you that we didn't start worship tonight at, at 6 o'clock. We joined into the song that's been going on for eternity, that you are holy. You are holy, 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 and we just want to join in that song tonight. We want to get a glimpse of who you are and may the, 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 our sin be washed away. May, may our, our problems be taken care of. May we just submit underneath your lordship. And may a lifetime of questions be answered in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.